Well, welcome. Um, this is the CSIS series on careers and development. And with us today is Gordon West. I think you have on, uh, you've got a sheet about him and his, his background. He has had a long career uh, in USAID, a lot of it in the Middle East and in Asia. And uh, he's done a lot of work on democracy and governance. And uh, he is currently the vice president of something at RTI. Right. Business strategy uh, and communications. That. And so he's been doing that uh, for the last, since about 2005, I think. You were out in the field with him for five years as the chief of party in Indonesia, I believe. And then back here on uh, right near AID. So uh, you've got his background and have taken a peek at that. So I'm going to turn it over to Gordon. Thank you, Bill. And good morning. Um, great to see a lot of predominantly young, bright faces here and, and those who are more senior in your career. Um, <laughs> yes, don't go there. Um, anyway, so, and, and this is in fact my birthday, so I'm feeling quite senior these days. Um, yes, more than next, yesterday. So, uh, basically, uh, just quickly, my career really started, uh, I had a background in industrial management uh, and regional planning, um, went into uh, Peace Corps, which really got the international juices going, I served in Fiji, which is not all that uncommon if you look at at least the uh, U.S. bilateral organizations uh, all, maybe 70, 75% have Peace Corps experience. Um, but I'd like to, to go over today, particularly not only my career in USAID, but uh, some of my recent experience with RTI, in two countries where I had the privilege of serving twice over an extended period, uh, those two countries being Indonesia and Bangladesh. So I've sort of expanded the map of Southeast Asia slightly uh, to include Bangladesh <coughs> here um, because it really provides an interesting perspective that I, I was uh, fortunate to see on what happened over the years based on the various uh, donor strategies, the, the path of USAID, the impact and, the, and sort of the lessons that, that you see over an extended 30 30-year period or so. So let me start first with Indonesia. I was with USAID and went to Indonesia in 1984. Uh, I was before that a project development officer and then went into private sector, a private sector office. It was the beginning of, of uh, the Reagan years and there was, was actually a strong emphasis during that period on increasing private sector involvement which was very, very interesting and uh, so it was also a time when Southeast Asia were the tigers. Southeast Asia economies were booming. It was, it was the, new, the new frontier for foreign investment and for, for growth in the developing world. And Indonesia was definitely one of the forefront countries. So it was a very interesting time to be working with the private sector. Um, a lot of interesting programs there. We helped start the stock exchange in those days. We were working very much on financial intermediation. One of the programs, there's a, Latin America has a great reputation from, for microfinance, and indeed many of the concepts started there, but one of the programs there, which I was fortunate to lead, was with uh, BRI. It's the basically the State Agriculture Bank, and uh, USAID uh, led a program together with Harvard International Institution Development, uh, HIID, and the bank. And the amazing thing was that that program, which is the UNIDESA program, it's it's written up in many places, but the real thrust of that program, or the real charm of that program was it, its core result was really that savings in the rural area was, was the big, the big uh, 
new enterprise. It, it realized, it, it opened the eyes of both state and private institutions that there was a great demand for savings. People didn't know how to save cash. People didn't know how to build assets. So uh, many, of the, many of the people who have looked at building an asset bait for the poor is really one of the key things. Far more compelling than getting the poor to get into debt and take loans. Uh, really, savings was a, a, a major power and a, and a big thing. And it was interesting because in those days, USAID did not want to deal with state enterprises. So we had to get major exceptions from USAID to allow us to work with a state enterprise. And it really did open the market for private sector. Anyway, just a, that was one of the areas in, in economic uh, growth that was very interesting and, and did do a lot. In the first two years, it was partnered with the World Bank because the World Bank was funding the capital for a lot of these units. In two years, BRI raised over $2 billion in savings from their rural branches, which just, I mean, it just sort of revolutionized <coughs> the picture of where banks could accumulate capital. Uh, so it was a great time. It was the Soharto era. So it's hard when you're inside that era to see what is the impact of this dominant control of so many levers of, of everything. Um, everybody knew that uh, that at some point the Suharto era, era had to end. Everybody was wondering what would happen to Indonesia when it ended. But it was a very successful time. One thing was clear: there was uh, this was the era of what they called the Berkeley Mafia. Uh, a lot of the intelligentsia of of the University of Indonesia, the ministries. Uh, the various places of power in Indonesia had many Berkeley grads. Uh, they were very well educated and very intelligent. And the fact is we even knew by the end of 18, 1989 when I was leaving that they had sort of played the system. We, there was an era when we were doing sector support so you would, uh, you would get agreements that the government would open up uh, the banking system or make changes to different parts of the agriculture sector and the U.S. government would then provide hundreds of millions of dollars. And in fact, uh, you know, often the laws were signed, the regulations were signed and not much really happened. They got the money and thank you very much. Um, because uh, the system was, was pretty strong and working the way they wanted to work the system. But it was an interesting time. Then I went back, uh, actually I was uh, working as deputy of the region for, for Asia and Middle East in, the, in 2000, so I was back then, which was after the 1998 financial collapse in Asia. And then I went back in 2005 to 2010 or 11 as a chief of party with RTI. And then a lot of this started to come into focus. And the first thing was that all the things that were, were signed and sort of ignored uh, came back with, with a force in 1998. A lot of the institutions and controls in the background, particularly in the banking system, really brought the whole economy down. Uh, and it was so strong that that's indeed what brought the Suharto um, leadership down. And uh, the years from 98 to 2001, where I was not there at those times, was an amazing period and has transformed the country amazingly. Uh, first of all, what it brought was a tremendous broadening of the political sphere. The political sphere before was very much controlled by the Suharto family and uh, groups tight with, with the ruling uh, Golkar party. And all of a sudden there was the growth of political competition, leadership, uh, others who came to the fore. And a lot of credit to the folks who really, uh, Habibi and others who were, were an, at the helm and really made dramatic decisions. 
and it's one of the one of the clear truths of development, if you will, in periods of crisis and change is when really development can have the greatest impact. If you're in a steady state economy, it is more challenging by far to really change cultures, political cultures, social cultures, uh, economic cultures. That period was essential to what uh, the growth and the, the image and the reality of Indonesia is right now. Indonesia has made tremendous progress, both on the governance side and on the economic side since 1998. It's been an incredible run. Um, my time as a chief of party of a program, it's the USAID Democ Democratic Reform Support Program, involved parliament, and involved the con constitutional court, media, elections, human rights, uh, decentralization. And uh, one of the major things that happened as a result of 1998 was probably the most uh, broad and fast decentralization of any government uh, in recent history. Um, some still challenge whether it was too fast or not, but, but it really restructured the map. It allowed for what now are uh, elections at almost all levels of government. It allowed for multi-party systems to develop in provinces which had been strictly controlled by assigned uh, governors that were the Golkar Party representatives. Um, and it largely pushed the funding so that now like 60% of the national budget is actually distributed through the districts and provinces. It changed the face of, of Indonesia and the responsibilities at the local area. Things that it didn't do was decentralize the economy and that's the major challenge facing Indonesia right now. Still there is a lot of political control, not necessarily in a one party system, but in Jakarta and in the political structures. So it's still a work in progress, but Indonesia has changed dramatically for the better. It has also started to devolve in part because the excesses of the 80s were really driven by forestry, by oil and gas, by basically the extractive industries. And that came to a screeching halt because the forests have been uh, largely decimated in many areas of the country because the oil and gas now, Indonesia is a net importer, which is striking given the reserves it seemed to have. So it's, it's had to develop a much broader economy. It's in process, it's not done yet, but it's very encouraging and the, and the leadership is on the right path. So it's, a, it's an, exciting, an exciting time and my lessons taken away from that is really, uh, really that the role of, of major crises and the leadership during those periods and how those opportunities are either taken or not taken and the impact on the long-term future of a country. Um, uh, so then I take a look at Bangladesh. I was... Uh, that was my first post in Indonesia. I was a, in those cases, an IDI, a development intern. Went out in 1976, was there from 76 to 79. And this is a case where Bangladesh had just gone through its crises. From seven, late 70, 71 till 75, it was a very traumatic time. 71 was the war of independence as, as East Pakistan became Bangladesh, 73, 74, major hurricanes, floods, uh, disasters, 75 was the assassination of Sheikh Majib, the president, and the killing of his family, his daughter being one of the survivors who is now the, the prime minister uh, in Bangladesh. And it was a fascinating time to be in Bangladesh. I was a uh, project development officer, did a lot of things in rural development, rural electrification, irrigation, 
but it was an exciting time to be in a country and there was a fervor within the government, there was commitment, there was the donors played a major role, obviously, because the country was very poor at that time. Um, and it was a lot of synergy between the donors themselves, between the government's agenda and the donors' agenda. And uh, it, was a, it was a great place to be as a junior officer and to really get your feet on the ground. There's a lot of opportunity. You could go out and you could take on ownership of projects, which, you know, in many missions, which were much larger and more central, you'd wait in line for several assignments before you got some of the duties that I was able to. So there's a lesson. You know, if you're going to start in development, number one, go overseas. Number two, pick some really crummy countries because you'll have more opportunities. Don't necessarily go for the big places because that's where they're usually short of staff and a lot of opportunities and challenges. It's a great way to learn. Um, so the, the foundations of rural development really started during those years. Then I went back in 1998 as the mission director for USAID. And uh, the first and foremost thing I noticed was Dhaka, the capital of, of Bangladesh. And um, with all due respect to people in Dhaka, you know, the, the, the capital city is a mess. Um, it has been, it's, it's densely populated. The traffic is, is a mess and, uh, and the infrastructure has not held up to the investments um, outside of Dhaka. Uh, but more challenging has been the, uh, the politics of Bangladesh. As a country, the people are educated. There are many, many, there are many successes in Bangladesh, so I don't want to paint a negative, a negative picture. Um, some examples are disaster management. If you look at Bangladesh, uh, we were there during what is the, the worst flood in recent memory, uh, which was August of 1998. Uh, this is flooding that lasted uh, for three and a half months. Literally, Dhaka flooded like a bathtub because it had, uh, it had massive polders around the city to protect it from the floods. And once they filled, it literally just filled up. I've never seen anything like it. We took uh, helicopter rides throughout the country. And for a country of, at that time, 130, 140 million. You can't imagine that there was even enough room left. There were little ribbons of roads where literally hundreds of thousands of people were sleeping on a road because everything was underwater. The whole country had flooded. It's, it's a very low-lying country to begin with. And yet, at the end of the day, after those three months, Bangladesh lost less than 1,000 lives. It's amazing how they managed to feed their people keep their people safe and manage and manage that. And I'll be honest, in comparison to, to India even right now, which has obviously the, the uh, typhoons and, and major, major disasters on a regular basis, the Bangladeshis do a much better job at disaster management. Many of their rural functions <coughs> are, are the heritage of both donor and government investments in the early in the early days. Still, if you go out to the countryside in Bangladesh, it's amazing. It's beautiful. It's functioning. There are many things that happen as a result of rural development that really uh, remain today. One of the major lessons I take from this is particularly the investments in institutions. In Indonesia, the major institution was U.S. investments in the Ministry of Finance. If you look at the government right now in Indonesia, the Ministry of Finance is the, it's the top gun. It has managed to control corruption within its ranks uh, with very tough measures. It leads in many, many areas, not only in finance, but across the cabinet. Um, it is the gold standard of the ministries. There are other ministries where that hasn't happened, and frankly, the biggest challenge for Indonesia right now 
is civil service reform. Indonesia is on the right path almost always, but the cackle, corruption, and other things, I think there are many people who would agree, they need to reform and reduce the size of the civil service. In Indonesia, the investments were things like social marketing for the health sector, um, the investments in many of the civil society organizations, which were largely Bangladeshi organizations. Uh, so you have BRAC, you obviously have the Grameen Foundation, which really the donors can't take too much credit for Grameen or BRAC, frankly. You had organizations like CARE Bangladesh, which now I recently visited, maybe two years ago. I don't think there's a, a single SPAT. It is 100% Bangladeshi run. Amazing organization with maybe 2,000 employees. Civil society has played a major role in, in uh, Bangladesh, and a lot of the donor funding has a credit to support over time those, those institutions. Um, if you look at Bangladesh, um, it really also comes down to, I don't know if it's civil society so much, but the political the political leadership. So you had the change in leadership and structure and structure in, in Indonesia because of the collapse of the Suharto era. In Bangladesh, that hasn't happened yet. You have the two major parties and the two leaders, uh, Begum Zia and Sheikh Hasina, who are representing the families that were there before the revolution, before before the formation of the concept of Bangladesh. And they're still fighting the same family battles that were being fought in the 60s and the 70s. And I think there's a general agreement in the young population that it's time to move on. That hasn't happened yet. So Indonesia has had that change in political leadership. It needs to develop the institutions. Bangladesh has somewhat got the institutions, but it hasn't got the change in political leadership that it really needs to get beyond uh, the, the interests of, of the, the narrow interests and, and get a more pluralistic leadership. That's, that's really the difference. It's not, I'm not pessimistic. Bangladesh is, has so much talent, so much capacity. Uh, it's known from recently from the textile industry, I must say one thing. If you look at the role of the private sector in question, probably the biggest development impact of the last 40 years in Bangladesh was the development of the textile industry. When I was there in the 70s, uh, you didn't see women often, and if you did, they were in brown rags, chipping bricks to make uh, roads or, or buildings, it was sad. It was a, a, things were generally brown. I went back in 1998 and there were women and, and men streaming down the roads in colorful saris, uh, going to work, you know, able to feed their families, get them to schools. It was just amazing. That was the major difference and it really, not only opened up economics, but it really introduced women into public life because women in general were not allowed out of the house before that. So it was a major shift in the mentality. So there's a shout to the private sector and the role that it can play in changing in changing a country. And it's, and it's very impressive and that, that continues. I'm pleased to see that perhaps there's a resolution lately in the, in the standoff on the terrible tragedy where the textile factory burned down. I've seen many of those, many of those factories and it is a shame, yeah, but uh, hopefully that's a step forward. So that's a, a little overview of, of two countries that I served in and, and what I've seen. Um, in terms of advice on, on careers, um, I guess my, my over my overwhelming bias is get to the field early. Um, it's where development really is. It's exciting, it's challenging. It's not the same as it was, so the lessons I've learned may not be relevant today. Among other things, the donors in some of the countries that you said was in in the early days, 
had an amazingly large investment in, in the 60s, 70s, was not unusual for the U.S. government to be putting two, three billion dollars, which in today's monies is probably, I don't know what it is today, but it's probably 10, 10 billion or more. So if you're looking at countries like India and Brazil and even Iran in those days, Philippines, South Korea, we were putting massive amounts of funds, and so there was a lot of impact. And the U.S. government had a very dominant role. Uh, it's, not as, it's not the same anymore. And there's different models, and probably positively, different actors who are coming in. We mentioned the private sector, the role of, of, of other institutions in development. So it's not necessarily just, uh, just the formal development organizations. There's a lot of ways to impact development in many, many uh, different sectors. But it's still an exciting and, and big challenge, and the development challenges aren't going away anytime soon. So it's an exciting field, but again, I would say get overseas if that's your passion. That's uh, and if if you're committed to stateside, in particular to Washington, I would say uh, a good example is Ambassador Garvelink. He started his career as a staffer on the Hill. A long time ago. And frankly. It's a great way, because if you're going to be in Washington, you have to understand it's a very political town. And it's important to have an understanding of the interaction between politics and development or whatever sector you're working in. So it's, it's good to get a handle on, on what really drives a lot of things that happen in, in Washington. So I'd say, you know, it's a, it doesn't have to be on the Hill. You know, there's people who are in USAID or other organizations who go uh, up to the NSC or the other aspects sort of, sort of get you outside your comfort zone. But I think it's good if you're going to be uh, working stateside to expose yourself to dis different aspects of what impacts development. That could be private sector, could be within government, could be in, in other aspects of politics. But I, I think it's, it gives you not only a better view of things, but the ability to cope with the reality of of what drives Washington, which is it's a very political town. And I don't say that negatively, it's just the more you understand that and are able to cope and deal with that, the better you'll be able to manage your manage your career and, and development in Washington. Okay. So with that. All right. Well think think about some questions you may want to ask Gordon. I'd like to start with uh, you, you talked a bit about the politics of Indonesia and Bangladesh. And it always struck me, if I'm right, uh, looking at uh, the budgets for AID and, in fact, DFID, other organizations, that are, are I guess we characterize ourselves as, ourselves as uh, the, largest and, the largest and best and most experienced democracies in the world. Yet our funding for democracy and governance, at least if you look at the earmark funds, is always much lower than other areas. And I was, I've always found that kind of curious. I just wonder if you'd talk a little bit about that. So having overseen missions um, where we had ambitious democracy programs and we would get budgets of, an example was Bangladesh. We were supposed to manage elections and build civil society and have local governance and our budget my first year was $500,000. Our health budget was something like 85, 90 million dollars. And I'd scratch my head. <laughs> what are we going to do with $500,000? Um, so I, I sympathize. The fact is there have been no protections really to speak of for the democracy budget. There are like NED, the National Endowment for Democracy, and other organizations would deal with democracy, which is outside of, of USAID or the formal bilateral, do have sources of funding directly from Congress, but the democracy accounts themselves really have not been a focus of earmarks. And earmarks really do drive a lot of what happens. So it really starts in Congress. Um, some of the fact that democracy didn't get funding was really the democracy sector itself was not a big factor early in the, early in the days of, of uh, USAID. It really grew 
sort of late 80s in the 90s when democracy became more of a strong focus, certainly under the Bush administration it grew also. Um, but I believe, uh, I believe we understand in democracy considerably, I really do. I, I believe in institutions, I know there's a big emphasis on human rights and civil society and I support that also, but I think you need to, you need to marry both sides. You need to focus on long term. A good example is elections. We spend a lot of money on elections during the elections themselves, supervising, look at voter registration, looking at the, uh, at the, uh, at the freeness and fairness of the elections. But I think we ought to invest more on the systems during the other four or five years between elections on what goes into good voter registration, good uh, communications, good education of the public. So uh, this is a case in, in similar cases. I think, uh, I think greater investment uh, would, be, would be warranted. So the two sectors that really don't get earmarked generally tend to be economic growth and democracy. So if you're in the health sector, generally you're very well protected with sequestration, that's going to be the case. And the things like democracy and economic growth tend to, tend to lose out. I would hope Congress would see the light over the day and over the days and you know, recognize that. But uh, well, they're not as good at democracy yet. themselves <laughs> right now, so they, they don't seem to have a focus on that. Anyway, questions? Anybody? Please. Hi, good morning. Uh, my name is Anna Nagrakovich. I work at the Center for International Private Enterprise, which is Sorry. part of the NED, incidentally. Um, thank you for a great presentation. Um, happy birthday. <laughs> to follow up, I guess, on the previous question, you started talking a little bit, and throughout your presentation, you mentioned several lessons in development that you've observed throughout your career. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about the lessons you've observed in the democracy and governance field, and some of them you already mentioned, you know, it has to, we have to look beyond election, we have to focus on institutions. What are some of the other things that you would add to that? Uh. The relationship between public participation and civil society. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on civil society and a lot of funding goes into the area of civil society. And often civil society can represent public participation, but sometimes there's quite a distinction. And I think the distinction is between what is organization and what is individual effort? And uh, so I think uh, one of my lessons is, is, is we need to really be cautious of creating organizations before there's a need for organization. And uh, the, US, the US structure of, of democracy, as an example, really was built on individual participation, individuals joining community. It wasn't necessarily organizations, it was the public spirit. And it was voluntary, it wasn't paid. And we have to understand that in many countries, you know, they're sort of where we were in building a, building a structure in democracy many, many centuries ago. So uh, I think my lesson would be don't, don't get too far beyond where, where communities really are. Are they really ready to manage major funding? Are they really ready to manage the organizational challenges as well as their own community challenges? So we have to be able to, to measure, you know, what, what is the vision and what are the needs of the community? And, and often that can be fairly simple and fairly unstructured. Uh, so that, that transition from, from informal community participation and its role in ensuring that its local government, its schools, its health care, 
it's uh, treatment of, of youth, or whatever the challenge might be, doesn't get wrapped up in too much in the donor agenda, in managing organizations, which is really skills that, that many local groups don't have yet. So that's an area I think it's still a, a process of learning. Um, I think the emphasis on civil society and public petitionation is right, but I think I think the models still need still need have room to grow. Let's say that's one key area. I'm looking at an article that appeared in the Wall Street Journal a couple of weeks ago, not even last week, on Indonesia. It's on religious freedom. The number of attacks on religious freedom is growing year on year. These include violent attacks on religious minorities, imprisonment of religious leaders, and the closure of Christian churches and of mosques belonging to the minority Ahmadi sect. Um, this would appear to be a growing problem, and it would affect um, the development of democracy in Indonesia. There's no question that, it's, that it is a growing problem. Um, I think one of my observations from both Bangladesh and Pakistan and, and other countries that I've served in, I was largely in, in uh, Muslim-majority countries throughout my, throughout my career. Um, so Indonesia is a case in point, Pakistan, Bangladesh in some senses. There is a, a, a growth of uh, tension within the, within the Muslim community. Um, it's not, I would say, an overwhelming issue in in Indonesia, but it's a political issue of, of who will who will risk to take on the Ahmadiyya sect is is one in particular which has suffered greatly uh, over the last five years. It was happening while I was there. Um, it's tough. The Christian community has had challenges. The Chinese community has challenges. So there there, there are many challenges still. Um, but one thing you look at is historically. The issue of whether of of whether um, Sharia law or Islamic governance uh, uh, should be considered were issues really which were suppressed during the Suharto era and the Sukarno era. Both um, these were issues which were very live in the 1920s and the 1930s. And uh, when there was a dictatorship, those movements were very, very suppressed. But frankly, in the rural areas, those issues never disappeared. And they've resurfaced since 1998, now that you have a more open and free, free society. So there is still a lot of tension within the Muslim community about the role of Sharia law, about the role of, of religion in government. And those issues are now sorting themselves out as they probably would have in the 50s and the 60s had there not been such a repressive regime. And sort of the same has happened in places like Pakistan, even Bangladesh, where, where there was strong uh, movements towards uh, the, a, a more fundamentalist role for, for Islam in early days. And uh, and now it's come back quite strongly. So a lot of these are issues that are that are being played out that have that have that have been within the societies for a long time. And so it's it's not going to go away. Obviously, the U.S. government's role. I mean, it had, this has been a big issue: religious freedom. Uh, and uh, and it's. Uh, it's it's a tough issue, and it's I don't think it's going to go away easily. But you're correct; it's a it's a big issue in the, in democracy. Absolutely. My name is Fetin Belhith. I'm from Tunisia. Uh, you have talked about uh, the country agenda and uh, the donors agenda. 
We are facing that uh, in Tunisia after the revolution. I have worked for uh, strengthening governance, especially local governments, as a way for transparency and fighting against uh, corruption. But um, when we talk, I, there is a dilemma here. I would like to have your opinion about it. There is a difference between countries' agenda and uh, the public's agenda. For example, um, the, so, uh, the civil society in Tunisia and the public uh, wanted to be to have more freedom, to to have a system that will allow, allow us to will allow us to be more efficient when it comes to taking the decision locally. But it's um, it's not it's not going through the uh, the country's agenda, uh, the government agenda. I mean, so in this case, wha- what uh, what we can do to to, to, to solve this problem. And um, about the donor's agenda, we have, um, we have the USA, uh, the European Committee also helping us, but everyone has uh, his agenda too. For example, they will think about the transparency directly or they will, uh, they, they, pro- they, su- they, pro- they suggest uh, certain uh, dates, for example, for election, for a system to do, manners to affect that, which is not uh, really in the, in the favor of the public. So it's a big dilemma. As uh, an activist, as uh, a Tunisian uh, citizen, how can we uh, do to help, to promote for our government, for our country especially? Thank you. I'm not sure I have all the answers or any of the answers. Um, My observation is in the U.S., for instance, we had the luxury of building from the bottom up. So from day one, federal government was was held in great suspicion and uh, great fear of creating something that we didn't want because we had learned from, obviously, from European and other experiences. And having seen many decentralization programs, the, the challenge you have when you try and take a centralized structure and decentralize it is you already have the vested interests created within the economic system, within the political system, within the social system. So you can devolve funding, you can devolve a lot of things, but you haven't devolved the vested interests. It's very hard to change those vested interests over time. So it's, it's, it's a harder process to break down an existing system rather than to create from the bottom up. Um, so, I mean, if you look like at, at the former Soviet um, countries, they had the luxury of having very strong local government units and very strong local participation, which has really helped those countries make a quick transition. Uh, And it's different when you try and break down the central authority. Egypt is going through the very same same issues. You had a very central control for both the economic and the political systems. And uh, so, you know, I think Tunisia has made a a better start than many many countries along this way. But I think uh, there one thing is you can't just decentralize the administrative structure. That's the government structure. Because decentralization is there's many levers of power, and often economic power is really what drives most development. So where are the economic controls? How do you develop independent economic actors at the local level? If the export and the industries are controlled by major powers, that's an area which really needs to be along with the political and, and administrative decentralization is economic authority. But, uh, you know, it's, it's a long, it, it takes a lot of patience. Uh, so hopefully the gains you make you don't, you don't let go of and, and people have a vision for what's the, what's the next challenge. But it's harder to dismantle authority than it is to build it. So.
My name is Allie Higgins, and I work at a government affairs firm. Um, my question is on elections. Um, the women's elections coming up in Indonesia, the new legislation that would require political party candidate lists to have 30, to be 30 percent women. I don't know if you're what, like what if you can talk about that and just how that how that's going to work. Uh, yeah, I was very involved up through when I left in 2010. We we worked a lot on the 2009 elections. Um, there's been a lot of debate whether, whether mandated percentages is the correct way to go about this. So there's, there's lengthy studies and papers that have been done in Indonesia on this very topic. Um, <coughs> NDI and IFAS and other groups have done a lot of look into this. Uh, the Australians are are putting a lot of funding in the elections right now as obviously as the Indonesian um, institutions and, and government. Um, really, the challenges start at the local level. The question is how many candidates are willing to step up or feel confident or have the economic support because it takes a lot of money to run for offices. So the challenge in Indonesia are you are down at the grassroots at your local levels how much openness in participation is there for women in the political system within each party um, are they grooming potential candidates early in the process um, are they developing local leadership at the sub-district and the district levels where th things really need to start um, so it's developing a cadre of qualified candidates within the party system. I mean, if you have a 30% target and you have, you know, only a handful of women who feel, you know, interested or qualified or motivated to join the system, it doesn't make much difference. Uh, so it's really, it's really incumbent on increasing participation and openness of the political parties at the local level. And that goes, there's now like 10 parties who are competing in the elections coming up. Part of the question is, how centralized is your, is your party control? Is your party control all about Jakarta? Is it all about who's the leaders within the, you know, within the greater Jakarta area? Or are they really engaging and empowering their leadership in the countryside? Because it's a massive and widespread country. So that's really where it starts is, and, and many of the organizations are very aware of this, in trying to get the parties themselves to be more democratic, <coughs> to wrest the control away from the elites in Jakarta, and to start getting more participation at the grassroots, and to build leadership from the bottom up. And that's, that's basically what it will take, I think. Um, the 30, I think there have been mandates before of 25 or so percent. They haven't really worked, but it's growing. Um, but it, it really, it's a grassroots issue, in my opinion. Uh, Joshua McGee, I'm currently working in a senator's office up on the Hill. Um, my question is pertaining more towards possible careers in development as a somebody who just graduated from undergrad. Um, in, I just wanted to see if you could talk on your through your previous experiences on um, the possible differences between working in the public sector and the private sector in international development and what things we as people who are going into this industry should expect from the different sectors and how they involve and interplay with each other in international development. In the private sector, um, I haven't really engaged directly as a, as a participant in the private sector. Um, there are clearly areas in, in the private sector where there's probably more active engagement. The health sector is a clear one. Um, the pharmaceutical and medical communities have been very engaged. Uh, RTI works in neglected tropical diseases, uh, diseases and, and malaria, and you have massive support of, of pharmaceutical and HIV AIDS obviously so there's a lot of interaction in some areas 
Education is another clear area where I think there's there's more cooperation. When, into, when you get into the areas more of economic growth or even democracy or or other spheres, it's, it's a little more uh, indirect for private sector to sort of conceive, you know, what are the relationships. One of the exciting areas is things like workforce development. We're doing a lot of look at the interaction between, between um, company and corporate interests and the need for trained and qualified workforce, and this is an issue throughout many, many areas of the world, uh, Middle East, Africa, many, many places. Um, but uh, part of the encouraging trends, I mean, the, the trend is, is growing. So the concepts within the corporate world going beyond corporate uh, social responsibility into, and into social investment and social enterprise, it's very encouraging. Um, so I'd, I'd say the, the opportunities to, to be a, help be a thought leader in the private sector is tremendous. And to, and to understand the, the shared interests uh, within, within government itself. Uh, President Obama just went to Africa and his entourage were, were largely private sector oriented uh, and the, and the thrust of the whole visit was this the challenges and the opportunities in Africa are well beyond our traditional development roles it's really time for for uh, the private sector in, in investment and in partnership and and the thought of as we've heard many times trade not aid in many ways in many ways it it, it may be it may be right so the the development paradigm is somewhat changing. It doesn't mean the role of development isn't there, but the understanding within the development community of its changing role is critical. So it's important and, uh, and a lot of the leadership within USAID and other organizations right now are beginning to, to not only cope but understand the challenges of, of a changing paradigm for the development sphere. So it's an exciting time to look at development but it's also a challenging time to really understand this new milieu and what are the opportunities and the, and the challenges. So it's, uh, it's an interesting time. So the old models, you know, who knows if they really worked or not, but the, they're not, they're not going to work today. It's a, it's a different world, different demands. There's a lot more talent now the world has advanced a whole lot so if you look at Bangladesh or in in 1975 or Cambodia or other places I've been versus the level of of global awareness of education of intelligence of awareness of the people of those countries it different world different world the world has developed in many many ways but it's a different set of challenges. So there's a lot of opportunities there, and maybe the institutions that you're going to join, whether they're public or private, may not fully grasp how quickly the world is changing. Social, social media and communications, the role. I mean, I'm bluntly, I'm, I'm working with my staff who are talking about tweeting and retweeting, and 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 this event itself. And thank God I have young staff to guide me on this so you're you're the harbinger of of the new era so so be confident because this generation has a lot to offer and it's a new model so go get them Hi, um, my name is Annie. I'm currently pursuing a master's in conflict resolution at Georgetown. Um, I was just wondering, you mentioned on the changing here, the dynamics uh, of development, but I was also wondering, in the field, there's lots of different sectors and actors at work. So how can development collaborate and work with the other sectors? What can development offer to the other sector, like education, humanitarian relief, conflict resolution, peace building, and what the other sectors can offer to development. Thanks. Yeah, this is, 
This is both the, the key and the real challenge of development. Uh, there is no defining answer except to say that the more we break down the stovepipes between development and other aspects of the econ economy, between health and other sectors, between, you know, the various practices within development, the better things are. And uh, it's not easy. The challenge for development practitioners now to understand is um, it may not be our role to set the table. You know, we may, we may be looking for a seat at the table rather than set the table. So we have to be very aware of what's around us and where we fit in. And sometimes that's challenging. You have a program and you have very specific objectives and you're focused and you want to achieve those objectives. Um, it's difficult to, to, to understand the milieu of everything else that's, if you're in the health sector, what are all the factors that's shaping this health sector? And how do you, how do you define your niche within that? So you don't always control all the levers that you think. And if you think you do, you're probably missing the fact that, you know, all the donor efforts in one sector may be one-tenth of one percent of that sector. It's almost an irrelevant portion of that sector. So where are your relationships and where are, who, what are the driving factors within that sector or other sectors? So, yeah, it's a big challenge. It's a big challenge. We were having discussions yesterday. Uh, we do a lot of great work in early grade learning in education. But there's a lot of other aspects that impact early grade learning in many of the countries we do. One of them is gender-based violence. There are many countries where over half the children attending or not attending a class are there or not there or not learning because of violence in the household. There's nutrition issues, stunting of growth. Uh, many times learning, learning results are impacted because simply the, the children are, are not nourished. They, they can't, they can't, uh, so the interactions, I mean, these are just limited examples, but you, you hit on probably the number one challenge on development, which is, is how, do you, how, do you, how do you understand the context, and this is not only the, the context of the development community, but the cultural and social community and the host government community and everything else that's around. It's a big challenge. And the donors, frankly, don't, don't do a very good job anymore of integrating together. They tend to be stovepipes, so <coughs> it's, a, it's a major challenge. Just one last question. Okay, go ahead. <coughs> Thank you. Um, Alex Brooks, I just started at the British Embassy here rather recently. Um, I think over a, uh, an evolution of several decades, the Western overseas development community has uh, rightly concluded that the best way to achieve sustainable developments, uh, both in the economy and politics and elsewhere, is to work behind the scenes on the governance structures, the institutions, uh, the architecture, the, the infrastructure there. What we're seeing now, however, is some of the emerging powers of the world are developing their own aid budgets, which they're delivering either as grants or more frequently as tied loans or soft loans or whatever else. And a lot of these tend to be more, let's say, populist and uh, visible projects, which in my experience only, I just recently came from Serbia, is uh, they were buying a disproportionate amount of influence, uh, given the fact that USAID, European Union, others were still by far and away the largest donors, but they were very much behind the scenes. And there was a perception that these other new friends are actually doing a lot more for the country. Uh, I, don't, I don't see us going back to the old days, no. Um, I think it does, it does um, emphasize the important role of, of the private sector in, in development, but I don't think it negates the need for good governance, obviously, uh, for, for tackling issues of corruption and, and efficiency and, and development of civil society and other, and other parts. But, uh, um, I think, I think it's not a competition. 
you know, we're all in this globe together and, and there's going to be different approaches. So I guess my answer is I would hope it would not change, change our, our bearing in, the, in our approach. There is a role for the private sector and, and I think good luck private sector. Let's see, let's see if you want to engage. So, but uh, I hope we don't see it as a direct challenge and change our base.